live from Comic-Con. Hey, it's Comic-Con, everybody. Is everyone enjoying Comic-Con? Hey, Comic-Con, Comic-Con everybody. Ooh. You come to Aspiring Snobs to get all the geeky content you want. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Just so many updates. So much news. It's Phase 4 from Marvel. <laughs> But also look out for the new Star Trek Captain Picard TV series. <laughs> just a million Star Treks. Just all the Star Treks. Uh, yes. There are so many Star Treks all in the multiverse. Hey, speaking of multiverse, uh, Thor's coming back, right? Is that a thing? <laughs> yes. Thor. They announced Thor 4. Thor 4. Even though they're not Thor, calling it Thor 4, Thor, even though that's the, best, that's the best title they could have given it. Sure. I, yeah, the, the Dark World. Anyway, um, <laughs> what else was premiered at Comic-Con? John, you were there. I was not there. I was... What? I live in the city, but that's the reason why I would never go. Oh, I see. Because yeah, it's, it's a madhouse, yes. It's, in, it's madhouse. insanity. A tourist a, a tourist trap, as, as it were. Well, that's the thing. I've heard that um, it's not... It's only a particularly good boon for tourism because our uh, our hotel taxes through the roof to pay for everything. So that it's a yeah. it's good in terms of that. Uh, if they actually leave downtown to actually do anything touristy. I really don't think they do because they spend so much money to actually get into Comic Con. I think that they when they actually get here, all they can afford is McDonald's. <laughs> so that's probably all they're willing to eat. I don't think anyone's going to go get artisanal tacos while they're in the gas lamp district. No, it, they only have so much devotion and brain power that they can devote <laughs> to, say, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or you know this generation of DC Comics that they're not going to be like, oh, while we're here, let's also experience the gastropub. Because <laughs> we're also foodies, yeah. I did get to uh, go to the Doug Loves Movie Show, or at least one of his shows, and my friend did get picked. Oh, yeah. So she got or her name tag was picked. So that's that's fun. That was that was okay. a fun little uh, comic. What, what's the incentive thing. to getting picked? Does she get to act out a scene with Doug, or what's no? What's the actual reward for getting picked? What do you mean? You get to like they when they win, the prizes go to the person that they picked. Got it. Okay, so it's a prize. Have it's you never have you never listened to Doug Loves Movies? Never. Greg, <laughs> <Not, laughs> you second. love movies. <laughs> <laughs> you know what else I love? Getting high. <laughs> John, did you know Doug Benson loves getting high? I know he, he never talks about it. So he was actually in a particularly uh, particular state this episode because there was a <laughs> what? Was like, That's so unlike him. Usually he's so professional and straight laced. <laughs> it was pretty bad. I'm not gonna lie, but the guests okay. made up for it. So. Oh, did they? Did they? Did they appear sober? Or yes, they were pretty sober because they were all busy. They were all doing things. Jonah Ray was one of the uh, guests, and he had to leave early because he had to go do something else. <laughs> Even though he was going to be at that club at seven thirty doing his own stand-up show, so I don't know what else he had to do. But yeah, everyone was exhausted. The Comic Con show is not always great because. He, he gets these guests typically last minute, and like they're trying to squeeze them in, and they all have other things to do, and they're all exhausted. So, But, you know, still a great show. My friend got picked. That's a good thing. It's never a bad thing. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like you got bilked out of some money just based on geek culture, um, oh. which is a shame. I mean, Speaking it of been, which, it I went to so Star Wars worse. land. <laughs> could have been so... <laughs> Speak of the devil, it could have been yeah. so much worse. How yeah. much did you spend on your lightsaber, Greg? I, well, we'll get to we'll get to the lightsaber uh, little task because it is a it is an integral experience of the part of the park. Of course, because they need to compete yeah. with Hogwarts World, where you get your own wand. So, okay. Oh, so their, it's not an original concept. No, so they need to go own... on the scavenger hunt for for a particular device inside this uh, geek obsessed universe. Oh, of course, and also you need your own little like expensive overpriced keep away talisman things so <laughs> yeah so I, anyway i did get a good deal now that the reservation system is over i did join the general public and seeing star wars land as i'm calling it i know it's called galaxy's edge whatever <laughs> it's star wars land for all intents and purposes <laughs> and i will and i will say it it does feel a bit apart from the Magic Kingdom, or whatever they actually call Disneyland proper, because it it's part of the general admission. You don't have to pay extra for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll get to the, the lightsaber and what you do have to pay extra for, but uh, it's 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 interesting in that uh, unlike when you enter Disneyland, when you see Main Street USA and it's kind of sensory overload, there's music playing, there's a bunch of characters. Here here is a more immersive experience. You kind of walk down this long uh, forestry forestry path mm-hmm. you hear like different creature sounds and maybe the sound of a ship like taking off or something and then you arrive at the at the actual kind of land proper 
Okay. And that is and that is all kind of done to the nines. It it's impeccable. It all raises at least like twenty feet above you, so you do feel like kind of immersed. Not not trapped necessarily because it is a bright blue Southern California sky above you. Oh, good because you know the last yeah. thing I want to feel at my theme park is trapped. But thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it can happen, John. Just especially for the claustrophobic among us. But okay, so. We did get to experience all two attractions that the land has so far. <laughs> the first being the only ride that they appear to have, which is called Smuggler's Run. It's basically the, this is basically Star Wars Land, and this is basically the Millennium Falcon ride. Okay. So like Star Tours, uh, instead of 20-plus people boarding, now it's just six of you. Mm-hmm. You get inside the Millennium Falcon cockpit, and you basically do a smuggling mission. How Okay, so this is why the ride takes like 90 minutes for you to line up, because it can only take six I, people at it, a time? It, yes, but they're different, they're different simulators, so they, they can have six, six people running into six different simulators at the same time, assuming okay. they don't break down. Okay, got it. Which they will, because this is, this is Disneyland, <laughs> and they have to run everything at all at the same time. So got yes, you, so you brought that up. After a brief 90-minute wait... <laughs> <laughs> which actually all things considered wasn't that bad it got as high as 150 minutes um, oh, okay. later in the day so because again it's the only attraction actually in star wars land but after that they again did everything to the nines even the floors are black and clacky like the actual floors that they lift up in the movie oh interesting yeah so you do walk through an actual simulated what am i saying simulated <laughs> recreation of the millennium falcon and that's very good you get a photo opportunity at the phony chessboard mm, nice. at the holographic chessboard you do get a photo op there and then you get to do the mission now i was one of the pilots and my joystick was not working Di- my disneyland survey will certainly hear, oh, hear from oh, me yeah, on yeah, that sure <laughs> I, my joystick wasn't working it's broken guys it's broken <laughs> But from there, yeah, the immersive aspect of it done incredibly well. Same with the other like big attraction there, which is the Cantina. Okay. Now this is still based on a reservation system. It's basically a club. If if you ever wanted to be a hipster and be in the Star Wars Cantina, <laughs> this is the place for you. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. It's the only place where you can drink, right? You can drink. You can get wasted. Yes. So there are actually. <laughs> well, you can't get wasted because it's a two drink max. So unless you're, oh my god, unless you're the... emaciated and <laughs> the on. comedy show oh. I went to was a two drink minimum. This is absurd. <laughs> <laughs> two drink. Well, because you need you need to be that drink. You need to be that drunk to find Doug Benson funny. Oh Boom. my god, thirty thousand feet tar- oh targeted gosh. strike. But, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, this is Disneyland. Of course they're gonna of course they're gonna control your consumer habits as much as they can. So <laughs> I mean, I guess we should praise them just the fact that they even have alcohol in the park, period. So Yeah. Most of the time you have to go to the boring parts for that. Yeah. <laughs> California Adventure is great. And I will not hear I will not hear a negative word about mm-hmm. California Adventure. Mm-hmm. Where you can have several craft brews. But the canteen itself does have very good cocktails, at least from what we tasted. Mm-hmm. There and um, there were four original brews, all valued at over ten dollars, but still like pretty good. Okay, so that was also an immersive experience. So far, it feels very hipstery because of the alcohol. Okay, I, I only saw like two families in there, and uh, we were told that we were even though we made a reservation and we lined up in time, we still didn't get seated quote-unquote, uh, for 15 minutes, and that every table was reserved, so it was standing room only. If we see an empty table, it is not for us. Those were those were the host's, host's exact words, so oh, okay. hopefully they Got spruce it. up on that in the future. All right. So those are the two nice immersive things that we did. Um, so, and I, as I said, did a wonderful job with the production design of it. It does genuinely feel immersive. However, don't forget that Disney is like the music man. Uh, loads of charm, but at the end of the day, you are going to lose your money. And that brings me to the actual lightsaber. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I didn't know that it was based on the wand uh, collecting scavenger hunt that you have at Harry Potter World and Universal. I did not know that. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know if there's an actual scavenger hunt component to it, but what I know is yeah. part of the part of the charm of going to the Hogwarts wizarding world whatever it's called is the fact that you do get to go to Ollivander's and you do get to pick out your own special wand and it's made All special right. for you i don't know if there's like a whole scavenger hunt aspect but yeah that's and again like you're paying like 70 dollars for what a stick yippee yeah <laughs> and it doesn't even do real magic come on <laughs> well there is uh there is an app where you can do not magic but you can hack into things and basically mm-hmm. make uh consoles light up you can make the vents go on the the millennium falcon display that they have so that that's 
the little bit of immersive magic that they have in Star Wars Land. Mm-hmm. But the lightsaber itself, where you go in the scavenger hunt, you have to ask for like scrap metal here and oh. you know a, a kyber crystal here. Th- that whole experience costs two hundred dollars. Ew. Yes, which is or twice the price I paid for admission. <laughs> You better, you better really like that lightsaber you have. Now, granted, I saw a few. They do look much more substantial than the plastic ones that they give to kids. But <laughs> I should hope I, so. I, th- I think it is for exclusively for. I know. Yes, I, I think it is exclusively for the hardcore Star Wars devotees that have costumes and original toys now valued at the hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. There was also a authentic Stormtrooper costume on display for $6,618. What? Yes. <laughs> like, legit, right. like, used in the movie? Is that what they mean? Uh, probably. I, I can't see any other way they would justify a price tag of $6,618. But why... But, but oh, yeah, all right, I'm over it. I'm I'm angry now. <laughs> Seventy six <Okay>. trombones <laughs> and the parade. Oh my gosh! All right, like I, I didn't realize. I like I'm I'm used to Disney World being like a place where you can actually see like maybe the props on display, but like to actually sell them, that seems weird to me. I again, I don't know if it was a prop. It was in the gift shop. It was when one of the stalls, which are granted made up beautifully like a stall you would find in St. Moss. I mean, Moss what's Lively the sizing or, chart on that thing? How is it even supposed I, to fit? I don't know. I, I, I was curious of that too. It didn't look like I would fit in it, but I, I'm a uh, uh, generously proportioned. Yes. <laughs> There's not much Greg would fit in anything. Walk right into that one. And now I'm roasted. <laughs> yep. Oh, 6,000 feet or whatever you said. Yeah. <laughs> Rome Precision Strike. Anyway, yes. Star Wars Land, very, very good, very well done job by Disney, I think. Okay. In terms of what fans are looking for in immersive Star Wars experience, I think they will find it there. Uh, maybe, I don't know, like, it seems like a little, maybe, inte- I don't know, I don't know if kids even like Star Wars anymore, so maybe maybe they'll enjoy Two Town instead. I, who knows, but still, That's for, a, yeah. for the, for the movie lover in your life... <laughs> Maybe you'll enjoy Star Wars Land. It's hard to know who Star Wars is for anymore. It's really that's true. It's really not. It's designed for to be for to everybody, but yeah, obviously mm. not every. It's impossible to please everybody, so <laughs> why bother? Disney keeps trying. Check out yeah, the Lion King opening this weekend. <laughs> the Lion King. Remember the Lion King? It's back, but different, but the same. Don't worry, it's fine. John, speaking <sighs> of filmmakers who are back. Different, but also the same. <laughs> yes, it's none other than Quentin Tarantino. Or Quentin Tarantino, as other others, including himself, call him. <laughs> yes, we don't call him that. But he, some people call no. him that. Anyway, yeah. we've seen a majority of his films, all nine of them now at this point. But uh, there's a few blind spots, and that's what this podcast is for, for filling blind spots and improving our film bona fides. Yes, he's coming out with his ninth film very soon, and so we thought we'd catch up on his filmography, and in one movie in particular we have not seen is his uh, post-Pulp Fiction, pre-Kill Bill, uh, Inglorious Bastards uh, <laughs> triumph, question mark? Um, <laughs> phase, I yes. guess you could characterize yeah. it as? Yeah, if I could steal the premise of another podcast, his blank check kind of project, his his big follow-up to Pulp Fiction. Mm. Wait, you you would consider this to be his blank check? Well, it's what everybody was looking at. <laughs> he'd, he'd lit the world on fire with Pulp Fiction, so everybody was curious what he would follow up with, and, mm. and this was the result. Yes. Of course, we're talking about the 1997 film, Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown. Some kind of 70s style music goes here. 
It's across 110th Street, to be exact. Uh, yes, that's right. Yes, I do like the music in this movie. Of course, who wouldn't, John? It's some of the funkiest beats. It's some of the funkiest, freshest flows that the '70s ever produced. Exactly. Even, Even though, though it's set in 1995. Yes, a bit anachronistic. Let's be real. But of course. I guess the point of this movie is that it's meant to be a pastiche, a homage to black exploitation. Even though it's really not. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm surprised by this because I think. Quentin Tarantino didn't have a project lined up after Pulp Fiction, but he and his uh, co- collaborator, Roger Avery, bought the rights to a bunch of novels by Elmore Leonard. Now, this author was hot at the time, after mm-hmm. Get Shorty. Everybody wanted a piece of Elmore Leonard. Yes. Um, I thought it was uh, James Elroy on the last episode. I apo- my apologies for that. <laughs> Quick correction. <laughs> but everybody wanted a piece of, of light, fun, cool James Elmore crime novels. Mm. Set in the backdrop of L.A., the most crime-ridden yeah. city in America. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and so this was going to be their follow-up to Pulp Fiction. Uh, and Quentin basically took the framework of black exploitation. Like, he's always inspired by the, the genres of the movies that he saw growing up. But I think he also intended to, to want to mature as a filmmaker. Mm. So he does a, a movie about a few older folks. What I'll say is like middle-aged folks instead of young people. Kind of eschewed the blood and gore, which some people accused him of, of celebrating in Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And tried to tell basically, be inspired by black exploitation to tell a more adult and, uh, what's the other word I'm looking for? To tell a more adult story. Mm. And I kind of understand the impetus for that, but does it have to be so long? Um, <laughs> there's a lot to like about this movie. It, and again, yeah. like going back to that whole theme of maturity, it's a very kind of methodical, slow-paced movie. Um, I think at its heart, it's a heist movie, essentially. But it's yes. you know it's dealing with themes about how people kind of treat women in our society. There's obviously kind of a feminist bent to it as well. Also by the fact that, you know, she's 44 as well like that's the other thing you kind yeah. of noted it's the fact that all the characters in this movie are older there's no there's no young people of the bunch or if they are young uh chris tucker comes to mind and they're bumped off quite early so <laughs> yeah. it's an interesting movie and there's a lot of craft on display it reminded me mm-hmm. a lot of kind of a really toned down uh coen brothers picture because it's all about kind of the editing and the rapid like tit-a-tit the back and forth yes uh, very a little di- bit cool Cooler and less quirky than a Coen Brothers. Exactly. Uh, surprise, surprise, there's a lot of dialogue in a Quentin Tarantino movie. <laughs> but it's all like yes. very well-paced, very deliberate, and um, I think it's a really good movie. I just wish it was kind of a little snappier, because again, if you're trying to do a heist movie, then you got to move a little quicker than this. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we, we kind of laid our cards on the table. We've both seen pretty much all of Quentin Tarantino's movies few blind spots here and there one of them being jackie brown now i don't think he's the same filmmaker since sally Mankey, his editor for the first films of his career um sadly passed away from a from an accident in 2010 and i i wish that yeah maybe that intention to be like a little bit more mature like uh kind of was done away with because yeah we need to get where we're going quicker the other thing is i think Quentin Tarantino, like, he, he has a knack for titles and, like, focusing on a character, but then, like, his attention is immediately diverted to something else. Like, the movie <laughs> Inglorious Bastards is very little about the bastards. <laughs> this group, this group, this wild bunch of, of army soldiers called the Inglorious Bastards. And it's the same thing here. I was hoping it would be a very grounded story about a 44-year-old flight attendant you know working class woman who gets caught in this life of crime and stuck between these worlds of of law enforcement trying to force her one way and her devotion to the the man she's worked with these with the past decade played by samuel jackson i i was hoping to be about that instead we veer immediately to samuel jackson's gangster (laughs) character his name's ordell robbie and he has a i i don't want to i don't know what to describe his style as (laughs) Um, he's Samuel Jackson. That's who he is. Okay. 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 Yeah. Of course. We know. We all know Samuel Jackson from the braid on his goatee <laughs> and his long straight hair. I mean, but in terms of his character, he's basically playing very much in his comfort zone. He's this oh, yeah. cool this... cat who's kind of bullshitting his way through life. You know, gets intimidating when he needs to be. Uh, we see him kind of bump off uh, Chris Tucker very early in the movie 
finer point to what you were saying. This movie's called Jackie Brown. Jackie Brown doesn't really enter the picture until 30 minutes into this two yeah. and a half hour movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we see her in the opening credits, but as you said, we need to establish uh, Samuel Jackson's character, Ordell, as first a cool character, but also a threat. Exactly. So we're introduced to Chris Tucker's character. He's gotten pinched, and uh, Ordell kind of uh, gets him out, bails him out, and that's when we also meet another key character, the bail bondsman, mm-hmm. Max, Max, Max Cherry, played by Robert Forrester, who gets the uh, Quentin, Quentin Tarantino career revival wheel. <laughs> he gets his spot landed onto it. In Pulp Fiction, it was John Travolta. In Kill Bill, it was David Carradine. Now it's Robert Forrester. Come on down. <laughs> um, that implies that Robert Forrester had any kind of dip whatsoever. Because he has been true. a magnificent player in everything he's ever been in. How dare yes. you, sir? Yes, you're right. I, I apologize. But <laughs> so we need to do two things in these first 30 minutes. I, again, I wish, I wish it was 10 minutes. But we established uh, Ordell as a cool cat. Uh, he seems like a very supportive character, but then uh, unexpectedly he bumps off Chris Tucker in a very tasteful and also like disquieting way. When we think of Pulp Fiction, we obviously think of those moments of violence, like Marvin's head getting blown apart, or you know, like Mr. Orange bleeding out through the entire runtime of the movie. But here it's shot in in wide. It looks like you know we only see him like menacingly put on gloves, but. You know, it's it's not played for kind of the, the the sick laughs or the silliness that maybe his first two movies were made. Is that what I think it is? What do you think it is? I think it's a gun pressed up against my dick. <laughs> well, you thought right. Now take your hands from around my throat, nigga. What the hell's wrong with you, Jackie? Shut the fuck up and don't you move. Oh, what is this? What the fuck is hey, this, Hey, huh? hey, hey, now, that ain't got nothing to do with you. I carry that all the time. You've been talking to them police too much. Oh, the police didn't try and strangle my ass. Oh, come on, girl. You know I was just playing with oh, you. Oh, well, I ain't playing with you. I'm going to unload both of these motherfuckers if you don't do what I tell you to do. You understand what I'm saying? Jackie, stop acting crazy. Do you understand what the fuck I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, woman, damn. Now sit your ass down on that sofa. Police start fucking with your mind, start pitting black against black. That's how they do. You know, been doing it since the beginning. Shut your raggedy ass up and sit the fuck down. Um, and also going back to that whole th- theme of uh, violence, the body count of this movie is particularly low. Um, when we get, when we actually do introduce uh, Jackie Brown, she gets pinched. She's again in a very similar vein to uh, Chris Tucker's character we soon learn that she's not going to suffer the same fate and she does not suffer fools lightly. No, sir. No, yeah. <laughs> um, that's, there's this very tense scene where we see, you know, uh, Samuel Jackson playing out the scene, basically the same way he pulls up, he puts on his gloves, he gets his gun yeah. and we assume it's all going to play out the same way, but then we cut and we do this split screen thing, which was kind of confusing, but then you kind of realize the intention of it. I think it could have been done just by cross cutting, but you know, Robert Forrester has picked her up from the airport and dropped her off. And, you know, while she's looking for cigarettes, she opens up the glove compartment and sees that there's a gun in there. Yeah. And, you know, they continue the scene and they go about their day. But then as he's getting back to his office at the same time that Ordell is meeting Jackie Brown at her place, he opens up the glove compartment and knows the gun is gone. And that's when we realize that she's had she has it to defend herself and she uses it to get the upper hand on Ordell. Oh, just brilliant masterwork, just mwah. <laughs> uh, it would be if this didn't take place over about half an hour. Yeah, this and is also true. Could it could yeah. it have been cut down? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And the one thing it also does, I think, story-wise, is it, the problem is, is that it neutralizes Ordell a little bit. Um, like, I, I still kind of wanted him to be a threat. Maybe there isn't really a way to write that explicitly without him being, like, a way to like still have him be scary, but also have Jackie Brown like overpower him in a way. Mm. So, and maybe there isn't a way to do that, but maybe it's also the way like Samuel Jackson plays it because basically she pulls the gun on him, and and suddenly he becomes not not frantic or whatever, but he's like just whatever, be cool. Like <laughs> it's it's not exactly the the mode I was in. I wanted this to be, I wanted it to hew closer to a thriller, but there's also this pull to be an Elmore Leonard adaptation, so just cool cats. You yeah, know, just everyone's cool. cool. I yeah. mean, that is kind of the weird balancing act that uh, Samuel Jackson has to play, because on the one hand, yes, we do know Ordell is dangerous, obviously, mm-hmm. with that opening scene, but also he's also kind of not meant to be too much of a threat, because we're also introduced to his 
girlfriend? <laughs> and question also, mark? Yeah, question mark. And his partner in crime, Luis, played by Robert De Niro. Who, yeah. why? I think it is just Luis. I don't know why he called him Luis. He's Whatever. not Spanish. <laughs> Whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> why is he cast in such a nothing role? <laughs> the, yeah, so I think in the... In the aspirations to be mature and basically grow as a filmmaker, he's he, he's not being as colorful or characterful in writing these these different personages. It it definitely applies to Robert Forrester's character, who in Sharp Relief to uh, Pam Greer's character is very kind of like stuck up, kind of by the book, maybe a little bit past it too, like kind mm-hmm. of like just aggravated by everything. Mm-hmm. So he's he's not very emotive. And that's great when he kind of falls sight, or he kind of falls love at first sight for. Fo- uh, I was about to say Foxy Brown. <laughs> that's not fun. <laughs> it's Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. And so we see it. We kind of see this. You know, just the, the eyebrows just twer- uh, just tweak a little bit whenever when she approaches him, and he kind of and he falls in love with her, mm-hmm. and that has implications of the story. Whereas Robert De Niro's character just kind of lies around and smokes weed and doesn't really factor into the story until two hours later, when he gets his own like kind of trademark moments of moment of violence. Exactly. And I think that's maybe what yeah, I think that's what maybe drew him to the role is like, oh, you are going to have a play a bigger part and you're gonna have this great dramatic moment when uh this girl this business partner melanie is she's really rat uh she's really like um harping on you and you know how how on edge you are and and so it's it's a lot of setup for i think very little payoff in the end because mm-hmm. it is a very brief moment of violence and then his character gets dispatched like two, 20 minutes later but uh, maybe that's what drew him to the role I don't know. jesus but if you two aren't the biggest pair of fuck-ups I've ever met in my entire life, how did you ever rob a bank? Hey, when you robbed banks, did you have to look for your car then, too? No wonder you went to jail. Is it this aisle, Louis? Is it? Louis? Is it this aisle or is it the next one up? You sure? Yeah, I'm sure. You're positive? Don't seem sure to me. Hey, don't say... Don't say anything else, okay? Keep your mouth shut. Well... I mean, don't say one fucking word, okay? Okay, Lewis. See? Just where I said it was. Going back to that, can we also talk about the character of Melanie? Like, yeesh. Because <laughs> I, I like... Horny alert. Horny alert. <laughs> no, I mean, just like... Close, uh, close-ups of her feet. Horny alert. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of the ultimate problem with the movie is the fact that this is meant to have kind of a feminist bent. This is meant to be an empowering story about a middle-aged yeah. woman. And then you have this just like stereotypical white LA girl who's just like annoying and just kind of like over it all the time. And it's just like, really? Like you couldn't do anything else with this character. Come on. It's not that, it's not that stereotypical. It's pretty Um, bad. Come on. She's, she's, she's got her own ambitions, John, Mm. for one thing. We should, we should probably explain that she's got her own machination. So yes, Jackie Brown gets pinched and this is where things kind of like, gets separated when everyone now that uh ordell's money's at stake everybody kind of wants it for themselves Mm -hmm. jackie brings max in to basically like basically help her and maybe they can build a life together that's what motivates max melanie wants to take the money for himself tries to recruit lewis into it but ordell like kind of sees four steps ahead and knows that she was gonna like (laughs) kind of turn on him and justifies it by knowing like well at least she's she's predictably unloyal (laughs) And of course, the the cops played by uh, uh, Michael Keaton and uh, who's the other guy? Uh, played by uh, Michael um, Keaton. How are we supposed to know? Because it's Michael Keaton stealing every scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> played by Michael Keaton and Michael Bowen, basically turning the screws on Jackie Brown to also get this money and and pinch uh, Ordell as well. Mm. I mean, but there's also a, like part of 
the the plot is the fact that you know Jackie Brown is able kind of to use her sexuality to her own advantage not by being kind of like flirty but she just kind of knows that she has this magnetism that men are kind of drawn to her and so for a while it seems like she's kind of taking advantage of Max as you know as well as the two detectives especially Michael Keaton's character kind of has a fondness for her um even though we can kind of tell that you know even though they're not going to end up together she obviously has a soft spot for Max and I do kind of appreciate the fact that, you know, Max gets out fine and he doesn't, he does kind of get his heart broken, but it's not like he's like a stooge. No, mm-hmm. I, I think he's very, the fact that they are so honest with himself the, to the, to the point where Robert Forster, and I think this is what earned him his Oscar nomination <laughs> for, the, for the movie, admits that he got, that he got hair plugs. Mm-hmm. That's true. And I believe that's based on a real life instance when Robert Forrester's like, yeah, I got hair plugs. You know, nobody's going to cast a bald guy in any movie. And for a long time, nobody did. Uh, poor Robert Forrester. But what am I saying? He's always been here. Um, <laughs> yeah, but also, like, who's casting Robert Forrester for his looks? Like, really? I, exactly. You you cast him for that strong, masculine, stentorian you mm, know, just uh, cool. shadow that he casts over the movie. Just a and, cool yeah, the kid. fact that he is so... Yeah, straight-laced, and I, I do want to clarify, I don't think uh, Jackie Brown uses her sexuality, I think it's more it's more her charm. There's one kind of strong symbol of this, it's that when it does come to this exchange, that's where the police are going to, are supposed to finally catch Ordell, mm-hmm. um, and where Melanie plans uh, on getting away with the money herself. Um, it takes place in a, a department store changing room, and... The, the whole setup for this is that she bought that Jackie Brown buys a very expensive business suit and it looks great on her. <laughs> so I don't think it's just the her sexuality, but, but the fact that how professional, strong, and confident she appears. Yeah, all right. Um, and you're is, right, you're yeah. right. Okay, that's all yeah. right. Sexuality was for lack of a better term. Basically, her, yeah. her, her basic, her, her strength as a woman, let's yeah. say. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Her feminine said, wiles, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> that said, we should probably explain that in the final final third of the movie, the final third of this two and a half hour movie, we do see the the little heist, as a, for lack of a better term, play out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see it from three different characters' perspectives. That's the only kind of timeline jumping or uh, time jumping that we do. Um, I know that's what Quentin Tarantino was known for, based on Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Here, here the movie is much more straightforward, with the exception of this scene. Um, but. We, I don't think we can stress this enough. There is no sex. There's one scene of sex in this in the story, a passionless lovemaking session between Robert De Niro and Melanie, mm-hmm. and there are, I believe, two murders played out very quickly and pretty, basically silently. Mm-hmm. So, ex- excuse me, three. I forgot the climax. So. <laughs> no, the the police were justified. He had a gun. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, very few fireworks in this movie. So if you are just in it for long, languid scenes of Quentin Tarantino dialogue, this is the movie for you. Uh, everybody else, I can't be so sure. Um, again, like, I appreciate it on that level. Like, I do kind of... I, 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 I've experienced distaste in the past when Quentin Tarantino does try to do too much of a grindhouse kind of flair. Like, Glorious Masters, yeah. you mentioned earlier, I actually did not enjoy that movie and i thought it was quite boring and i hated it but (laughs) this one i did appreciate again for the thriller aspects and or the thriller accoutrement shall we say yeah and the the heist uh plotting as well although it is kind of missing one key feature that all uh, heist movies require which is the hiccup as the heist is happening, there has to be some kind of complication in order to kind of keep the the tension ratcheted. Wait, you think Robert De Niro's character shooting Melanie wasn't enough of a hiccup? <laughs> I mean, for Jake uh, Jackie Brown, because her plan That's goes true. out without a hitch, and we yeah. kind of already know that. And I kind of was hoping that there would be like some kind of problem with her whole scheme, so that because again, we're on her side. Like, yeah. honestly, like I was waiting for her to I was waiting for Melanie to get killed because obviously she's playing with fire, dealing with these two very violent men. And then yeah. also, like, it was only a matter of time before Robert De Niro kind of his character did something wrong because he's kind of an idiot. <laughs> yeah, he's kind of a goof. Yeah, we should explain his his character's backstory is that he's like getting back on a four year prison term, you know, <laughs> incompetent criminals do not go to prison. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I mean, when you yeah, think so about it, right. that's kind I, of Ordell's downfall is the fact that he keeps the way he kind of recruits into his little uh, cabal of criminals is basically he gets them out on parole. So basically, yeah. if they're already out on parole, they're not good criminals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's to basically dispose of his problem is by paying their bail. But yes, um, I think you're right. Jackie Brown is basically the superhero of this movie. Mm-hmm. The 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 heist from her perspective kind of goes off without a hitch, or at least the only hitch being uh, Ordell finding uh, Max Cherry and basically using him as a bargaining chip to get his money back from Jackie Brown. Mm-hmm. But she's already got the upper hand in that situation. We alluded to it earlier. Um, she sets up a, a stakeout with the police. Um, they concoct a situation where it looks like he, he reacts violently and they shoot him dead. <laughs> so, yeah, it never. that's the only moment where it feels like, and maybe early in the movie when she does get pinched and Ordell is basically set, set out to, sets out to kill her, that, yeah, her life is in danger. Otherwise, she handles everything else like a cool cat. And, and that's I think that's that's the problem. The the movie at times can feel as as flat as the South Bay area of Los of the Greater Los Angeles area where this movie takes place. Come on, Greg. Everyone's cool. Yeah. Be cool. Yep. Come on. Be cool. It's exactly. LA. Hey, we're being cool. I'll send you a postcard. Will you? That's your will, partner. You're running a business, Max. Jerry Bailbon. Uh, what is it your son's charged with? Yes, that's a very serious offense. Is your son still in school? Does his father still live in the house? Again, go in with the expectation that this will not be the typical Quentin Tarantino movie, which I know some people like me are sick of just the genre pastiches and not really advancing as a filmmaker. Mm. And now that I have seen him attempt to mature as a filmmaker, I can't say I wholeheartedly enjoy the results either. (laughs) While I do like them and admire them to some extent, I, I... don't have any ambition to sit through Jackie Brown again. Oh my gosh, listen to you. Ugh, I hate it yeah, when he does these pastiches of old genres, but then when he tries <laughs> something different, it's boring. Ugh. <laughs> listen to you. Whine and complain. Well, John, what's really on Quentin Tarantino's side? What, his, the problem is his life is movies, so <laughs> everything, everything he portrays in his art will be about movies. I guess this is true. Yeah. That and feet. He loves feet. Yeah. <laughs> Sound the horny alarms, people. <laughs> that was a weird little touch. With I, like, I assumed that the the feat was just to kind of gratify him. But then there's that weird moment where her toes touch the rim of the glass. Was that like her flirting or something? I don't know. Probably. Although you're getting probably flirting. I mean, yeah, he probably. <laughs> or at least that's what Quentin Tarantino. He probably had to flirting. change his pants after they shot that. <laughs> I do like that this is one touch that he has. Like when you see a pretty much a, a filmmaker's whole filmography, you see the little like characteristics that they do, mm-hmm. and it's definitely true here. Again, a lot of long, languid scenes of dialogue, but he always punctuates it with like a close-up of something. That is true. Yes, I also yeah. noticed that as well. Like even when yeah. someone's like getting a cigarette out, we get like a tight, you know, shot of the cigarettes being unwrapped or whatever. It's very strange, but you know, also yeah. kind of Same keeps with- the pace up, I guess. Yeah, I don't think it's strange. I think it's just a way of like, okay, this is getting a little slow. Let's punch it up with something. Um, I remember in Django Unchained, they have a long conversation at a bar, and he does a close-up of the the beer pouring and slashing the the foam away. And yeah, so this Quentin Tarantino guy, he's going places. I think I believe he is. Yes, (laughs) but do you? I don't know. Like, should we adjudicate whether this belongs in 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 filmic canon? I don't know. Like. I really enjoyed Inglorious Bastards. I think everybody should see that one. But I've, I don't know. It's not as seminal as, say, like Pulp Fiction, but not as, like, I don't know, enjoyable as, as a Kill Bill or Inglorious Bastards, maybe. Or mm-hmm. Django Unchained. I don't know. 
I mean, I I definitely enjoyed Django Unchained, and I liked The Hateful Eight a lot. Um, I yeah. did not like Inglorious Bastards. I thought that was bullshit. And uh, <laughs> Pulp Fiction's fine. I I appreciate the fact that it is kind of a huge genre-defying moment for yeah. the you know the history of Hollywood when you think about it in kind of the grand scheme of things. But for me, it's always just been fine. And Reservoir Dogs, I never really cared for much. But that's just me. I don't know. There's there's a yeah. factor of personal taste and. I think that's probably why I appreciated this movie a lot more than his other films. Is like you said, it kind of eschews the gore, it eschews the you know, oh, look the the prevailing immaturity that he he tends to capture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because again, his whole life is movies, particularly movies of his youth. So, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> there there's no way to kind of maybe now that now that I've seen that, like there's no way for him to escape it, and so I should just I should just enjoy it or not try to not try to force my will upon it, just kind of let it wash over me. And so like yeah, Jackie Brown did kind of wash over me. No. <laughs> yeah. Like again, and the weird thing I always want to bring up with him is he says he's only got ten films in him. What what? I t- <laughs> like Paul Thomas Anderson commented on that as like, Are you kidding me? If you were a real filmmaker, you'd have endless films within you. <laughs> yeah. You'd have like fifteen different I think what doesn't help is that around, I, th- I think a few years ago, he bought the new Beverly Cinema and now curates everything. Like, he pours his heart and soul into that as well. Oh, okay. Like, they still, he probably operates out of a loss, and they still run strict celluloid and 35 millimeter projection Yeesh. on there. No digital projection. Yeah, exactly. Oh like, gosh. it's probably a pain in the ass to run an old-fashioned movie theater. So, okay. I think, I think that's what really distracts him from saying, like, I've only got one other movie in him. And... Sorry, not to not to besmirch Paul Thomas' character's uh, uh, character or anything, <laughs> but you, yes, you have to be passionate about film to be a director. You also have to be a psychopath. It is a pain in the ass, to, and years of work to make a movie. So mm-hmm. I can I could completely also understand, like, hey, I don't want to wake up at six a.m., bring in fifty thousand different trucks and crew members and people to shoot maybe two minutes and be under the pressure of a release date and a budget and all this other stuff. So that's true. It's like the worst. Yeah project management job imaginable <laughs> exactly <laughs> but people do it they do it for the art no thank you yes they no thank you for the art. <laughs> i know oh come on greg you wanted to be a director at one point in your i life. know i know that's why you moved I, out to I hollywood still, i still do to some extent but now th- now there's small chamber dramas so we can all go home at the end of the day <laughs> <laughs> or we could be done shooting in about 20 days <laughs> okay three-week vacation yep that's what youtube is for now you just make your little that's youtube true. videos make your little <laughs> youtube channel your little cute little videos. Your, yeah, your mother loves your little videos. Yeah. Maybe that's Quentin Tarantino's next thing. Video essays. Oh, that would be fun. He has written essays before on film. He's actually narrated one on There Will Be Blood. It was more an interview, but somebody kind of transformed it into a video essay. So <laughs> oh, I think that's his next step. Yep. I mean, he'll, he'll follow in fine footsteps of Will Smith to trying to become a, mo- a YouTube star. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not a downgrade whatsoever. Yep. <laughs> Good for him. Good for him. Yeah. Anyway, John, I feel we've been too negative this episode. You're right. You're absolutely right. I, I feel. I mean, that's a criticism you could say for most episodes. Every episode. Yeah. <laughs> look, we're critical minds, and we look at things critically. But let's yes. also. That doesn't mean that we can't focus on the positive, and that's why absolutely. we end every episode with our signature recommendation segment: Spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time. I want to recommend again. I was I was complaining about YouTube earlier, but you know what? I've got another yeah. re- YouTube recommendation for you. Ugh, John, people spend enough time on the internet. <laughs> Get them out of the house. Uh, oh, so what are you going to recommend? Star Wars Land? No, thank you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> they still need money at the end I of the day. I was part of an immersive experience. <laughs> I was part of an immersive experience. <laughs> Something that only twelve million other people every year get to experience. So I've kind of discovered that part of this new phase of my life yeah, <laughs> is what I'm calling it. Um, yeah. Basically what I seek out in YouTube nowadays, it used to be like video essays. Now I just want like documentaries. Now I just kind of want okay. like little explainers. And what's also fascinating is when you've got a short style or a short subject documentary, you get to end up doing a lot more kind of stylistic flourishes as well. So that's kind of the interesting factor about with YouTube. And that's an interesting factor when it comes to this channel I have to recommend. It's called Internet Historian. Ah. <laughs> John, I think you're a little late to the punch on this one. I am? Um, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> what happened? He's been, yeah, he's he's been, I, w- I wouldn't say popular, but uh, certainly uh, 
uh, caught the enthusiasm of, cer- of a certain corner of the internet um, <laughs> with it, with his style, uh, his use of memes, for instance. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, now now he's caught your attention with a particular video that I know you're eager to talk about. <laughs> well, I mean, he's also doing a great service because basically the the premise of the channel is that he's explaining when or if something goes viral or something happens on the internet then he's kind of there in his very you know australian sarcastic sense to explain what happened and why and give it a little bit of context again not too much context because that would be work and that would go against the kind of (laughs) anarchic sense of humor that he has he's very much if if that's one major criticism i have for it it's a little too into the kind of 4chan-y kind of culture, and I kind of wish he took a little bit more of a critical stance on that, but obviously he does not, so they're the yeah. ones giving him all his material, so... Yeah. <laughs> and and his popularity, I assume. Exactly. Yeah. Because um, I think the movie you want to talk about has 7 million views now. <laughs> oh, no, it does. Last night, yeah, let me pull up my calculator. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you're right. It does have 7.9 million views. Holy yep. shit. <laughs> Um, his latest video was exploring what happened with the launch of Fallout 76, and oh boy, it yeah. was a lot. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Yeah, way too much for you and I to keep up because we're not gamers anymore. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I do like I do try to follow. Like, I read a lot of like tech blogs, like The Verge and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I kind of know on the periphery like what's happening if there's like a big kind of kerfuffle involving a video game. But I had no idea just the amount of things Bethesda did wrong with the yeah. launch of this video game. And it's, it you know, it's just his style and his voice are just, oh, they're just so immaculate. Like, he just kind of yeah. has the perfect voice to reiterate this stuff. It's just perfectly sarcastic the way he goes. And they've <laughs> he's talking about, like, the pre-orders, and it's, and it's supposed to come with a magnificent canvas bag. Ooh, yeah. that's nice. <laughs> yeah. The bag ended up being nylon, and oh boy, were the fans not happy. (laughs) I want to spotlight one particular instance of the video to uh, placate fans who were disappointed by the quality of the bag when they were promised canvas and got nylon instead. (laughs) The uh, Bethesda offered them uh, in-game currency to the amount of 500 atoms. (laughs) And so he does the scene, 500 atoms? (laughs) What are you going to do with your 500 atoms? (laughs) I'll buy one-fifth of this particular item. White lid lemonade. White lid lemonade. White lid lemonade. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck the bag. We've got five hundred atoms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, he's also done one on the Fire Festival, which is if you're not interested in the Hulu or Netflix documentary, that one's you know short. It's only ten minutes, so that'll give you yep. a nice a nice condensed version of the story. And then also, it's he did... from the perspective. It's from the perspective of a Fire Festival uh, castaway. <laughs> there you go. Yes. <laughs> But also he did a great one about uh, Coney 2012. Everyone remember that? Oh, man, that was huge. (laughs) (laughs) And the uh, the other reason why I'm recommending him now is because uh, I think he'll have a great video in a few months about this whole Area 51 raid. I assume he's going to eventually do a video on that. Maybe, yeah. What the hell is going on there? (laughs) I don't know. Again, it seems like the perfect kind of fodder that he would do a video about, so... Uh, Again, Mm. it's just one of those those memes that just get out of hand and... Oh, the yeah. internet. It's a it's a fascinating place and internet historian just makes it a little bit more palatable, I suppose. Only a little bit. Yeah, Only a little bit. Not too much though. Come on. Yep. He still keeps it weird. Yes. Keep it keep it weird, folks. <laughs> well yes. actually to some extent, I would like it to be a little bit more palatable, please. Uh, no, of course, because Greg is Greg my, is my square is not, not as anarchic. Uh my humor isn't as meme based, so please. <laughs> You spent a lot of time on Encyclopedia Dramatica at one point in your life, though. You have to admit. I did, and I regret those days. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I'm a full-fledged human being now, okay? Those days are beyond me. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. John, uh, there's another thing I want to drudge up from my past. Okay. Now, seeing Disneyland, you get to see the whole Disney marketplace <laughs> and what really draws people's attention. Oh, boy. Um, obviously, Star Wars being a big one. Mm-hmm. You've got, uh, obviously, your Disney princess apparel. Like, obviously, everybody loves the Disney princesses. Mm-hmm. And now in California Adventure, my favorite aspect of the whole Disney franchise, uh, and anybody anybody who disagrees with me is wrong, mm-hmm. but they have a new area called Pixar Pier. So we hope you're a huge fan of Pixar, 
unless your favorite films are The Good Dinosaur, <laughs> A Bug's Life, and the film I want to spotlight, the best movie that Pixar has ever done, Ratatouille. Oh. All right. Disneyland, I will not let you erase history. All right. Ratatouille is oh, no. the best movie ever made, <laughs> other than maybe The Rescuers Down Under. <laughs> For those that don't know, Ratatouille stars uh, Rob, uh, Patton Oswalt as the voice of Remy. He is a rat who aspires to be a cook. <laughs> Now, the problem is rats are not allowed in kitchen. What is our rodent friend to do? <laughs> Greg, he clearly has a dream he'll never fulfill. So he should yeah. just give up now, right? Yes. <laughs> and I think that's maybe where the popularity of the movie was, uh, or at least the concept of the movie was lost on people. <laughs> like, you obviously have a character who's overcoming an insurmountable obstacle. That should be interesting. But what he's striving for is the validation of a critic <laughs> or like a successful restaurant. That I think people like couldn't quite wrap their heads around. Good point. Um, particularly in Paris. Paris. Ooh. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> the snootiest. I don't think I don't think salt places. of the earth are, yeah. Yeah, I don't think salt of the earth Americans are that you know, that fond of like going to Paris and achieving their dream. <laughs> That's exclusively set for art-filled uh, numbskulls like me, and that's why I adore this film. But I, I know we also, uh, with our taste, like uh, I like a more uh, straightforward story, like a complete project. You like like it if a film's a little messy and has a bit of everything in it. Mm-hmm. And Ratatouille is the kind of film that I love it, even though it does have a bit of everything in it. There is, there's a hallucination of a French chef who becomes like a Chef Boyardee figure, but it really inspires uh, Remy to pursue his dream. There's a whole training montage uh, where the useless linguini, who Remy has to use as a conduit for his cooking, uh, has to learn cooking himself. Mm-hmm. And he, also, he controls him like a big human puppet. That doesn't yes. get creepy at all. <laughs> yeah. There's a scene in which uh, th- our immaculate villain, played by the just incredible Ian Holm, mm-hmm. God, God bless his soul. Oh, God God bless. He Best best villain in Disney history. <laughs> um, he tries to extract the secret of Linguini's cooking by getting him drunk. <laughs> so this is basically, like The Incredibles, this is a Pixar movie for adults, essentially. I'm sorry that kids were left in the dust when they were... <laughs> I mean, the only kind of kitty aspect of it is it does involve talking animals. That's pretty much it. <laughs> that, yes, exactly. The rest of it is exclusively for art-minded uh, adults, particularly ones who appreciate like just the artist spirit and cooking in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I should say, upon revisiting the, some a few scenes, the quality animation does hold up. They did try to do like photorealistic recreations of the food, and that that totally works. And as well as just that they they presage just the amount of enthusiasm that people would have for seeing Patton Oswalt, hearing Patton Oswalt's voice and seeing him on screen. Because now he's everywhere and people still adore him. <laughs> and so credit to Brad Bird, who I think really drove the casting decision of this little known comedian, best known for like his KFC Bowls bit, um, <laughs> to be the star of a major Disney film. <laughs> Wow, Greg, again, your spotlights yep. are just like so creative. Hey, Chinatown, good movie. Ratatouille, I <laughs> should also check out that one. Sean, if you had gone to Disneyland, you would not have known that this glorious movie had existed, all right? Are you kidding? There is not one single restaurant that is themed to Ratatouille. Not one. No, exactly, John. Oh I, I knew you'd be as shocked as I was, that and that's mean. why it simply demands action. It simply demands that I let people know that Ratatouille exists. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that too much imagination for the Imagineers to come up with? Come on. <laughs> what is this? Garbage. Exactly. Come on. Oh, the market has spoken. We all know the market is a terrible arbiter for taste <laughs> and quality. Hence why we need critics. Thank you, Ratatouille, yes. for reminding us that. <laughs> no, we d- don't need critics. Or this is yeah, this is where maybe the movie falls apart because I like this emotional climax where the critic, the mean bad critic played by Peter O'Toole, mm-hmm. the late great Peter O'Toole, is won over, um, and kind of intones that a, a great chef. Not everybody can be a great chef, but a great chef can come from anywhere. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a great little monologue. But uh, yeah, it it does like basically say like uh, critic critics f off. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he loses his job after defending that restaurant, so there you go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> shows that and every it, well does it, Yeah, the fickle. whole restaurant closes down. Yeah, so it's very. <laughs> 
maybe uh, to overuse an analogy, it left a left a weird bitter taste in people's mouths. So maybe that's I mean, why. Look, it has the same flaw that all kind of Brad Bird, or at least a lot of Brad Bird movies, yeah, a lot of Brad Bird movies have, which is they're a bit overwritten. Like, let's be honest. Yeah. There's oh, yeah. One scene in As particular. I said, it's overstuffed with a lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And there's one scene yeah, overstuffed with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Great, <laughs> great, great, great writing there, Greg. <laughs> There's one scene in particular that sticks out to me where his father kind of confronts him with that uh, that famous uh, um, extermination storefront that has the hanging dead rats. It's like, yeah. listen to the dialogue again in that scene and don't tell me that it could have used one more pass. <laughs> just like <I've, laughs> that scene is just like a textbook example. Kill your darlings because come on. <laughs> <laughs> when it's delivered, though, by the great Brian Dennehy. No, yeah. And Patton Oswalt does a good job, too. But it's it's so yeah. overwritten. It's like, you can't tell me, father, that all this is all that's meant to be. It's like, really? Come, this is a kid's movie. I, Calm down. I know. <laughs> It's it's maybe yeah far too too I don't want to use the word sophisticated but definitely its sensibility is far too adult um, to be a Pixar movie so I I can understand it yeah if they basically omit it from all Disneyland parks <laughs> look forward to Onward next summer guys I that movie looks fine yeah 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 I'm I, I they've, they've all that goodwill's run dry for me Pixar oh, you let me down. I only cried twice at Toy Story 4. (laughs) Get out of my face. All right, John, you know who will never let us down? Who? You and I. On the social media and our email. (laughs) Wait. Where we reply to every single one. Who's going to not let us down ourselves? (laughs) What? Yes. (laughs) You want to rephrase that, maybe? It's so. No, I don't. No, I will not. Okay. (laughs) But yes, you were on social media, so you can connect and engage with the Aspiring Snobs podcast by listening or, well, you just listened, follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. We'll be there. We'll be sending you all the latest content, just the biggest content, just the best content. Yes. We also have an email address, aspiringsnobs at gmail.com, where you can send us your feedback, recommendations, even questions that we'll answer on the show. Of course. We might read your email aloud, and wouldn't that be fun? <laughs> I, John, come on. We want to incentivize emails to no, come in. Good not, point. Good point. <laughs> But yes, and then, once you're done with all that, you can go to your podcast mm-hmm. service of choice, whether it's Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and you can give us five stars, and that'll help others. That'll push us closer to the recommendation front page, wherever these podcasts live, wherever they get their prominence or whatever. And then more people will find us, and we'll help build the Aspiring Snobs community together. Wouldn't that be fun? Yes, we are seeking. Yeah, we are seeking listenership. We are not speaking sponsorship, though. No. no. This podcast will remain completely ad-free, mm. uh, as far as we will let it. So, okay, yeah, but um, we also don't have a Patreon, so <laughs> we're basically... That, that's the other issue, yeah. So we literally just do this for fun. Yes. Um, so, until Stamps.com dangles a giant check over us, um, <laughs> you can enjoy an ad-free experience. Exactly. <laughs> Did you see that NY Times article? I don't know why I called oh, it the NY yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh, how embarrassing. <laughs> Well, I don't have I don't have a New York Times subscription because the New York Times sucks. So, <laughs> and they they approve it once again with uh, uh, positing via headline. Have we reached peak podcast? And the the lead for the story, the example they use is two I don't know bored housewives. I don't know what they were, I don't know what they were. <laughs> two Brooklynites, but, you know the worst people. Yeah, Brooklynites who did, obviously didn't have enough going on in their lives said like, hey, why don't we do a podcast? They called it imaginatively the advice podcast. <laughs> Where they would dole out inv- advice and just have a conversation, <laughs> and they literally and the and just the piece of resistance, they quit after like six episodes after they did yeah. get a following, <laughs> like yes. immediately. Yeah, I I retweeted this. I in this tweet. I I know we hate talking about Twitter on this on the show, but. I a tweet basically perfectly summed it up like wow two people who had no knowledge or passion for a certain project uh, <laughs> saw the project fail stop the presses hey, was- now that's just the lead I'm sure the article goes in several different directions probably but I don't know again the New York Times sucks let's get him out of here <laughs> talk about lamestream media am I right guys exactly Ugh, yeah the lie in New York Times <laughs> I know the, li- the lying New York Times by saying uh, <laughs> Trump promulgated uh, uh, race- <laughs> racial history by <laughs> instigating a a, fi- a firebrand of, of, of racial animus mm. <laughs> via comments that some found incendiary. 
<laughs> they do love their big words, Greg. Okay. <laughs> yeah, indeed they do. I want to give all credit to NPR, which has characterized all his tweets as racist. So I do want to give them credit. <laughs> I, you know what? I won't give them credit for having all these Republican stooges then on. Like, hey, could you explain like whether, whether you're uh, whether these tweets are racist? Guess what they say? No. <laughs> <laughs> then why are you wasting like five minutes of my time saying, "But sir, please"? <laughs> to call them out, Greg. It's call out culture. They're canceled. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And this is part yeah. of it, all right? Before you before you can get officially canceled, you have to appear on NPR to try to defend yourself and look like a fool. <laughs> but they don't look like fools, and nothing changes. No. So. This is also true. NPR, nothing you're changes. on notice, too, all right? I've already canceled the, the New York Times, and NPR's <laughs> on notice, so. Ugh. But sorry, sorry to end on such a sour note, John. I know. Come on, let's 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 keep it positive, all right? Uh, let's keep it positive. Uh, well, I don't have positive news to report because next week we're taking the week off. So yeah. <laughs> oh, whoops. <laughs> yeah, we're on vacation. So yeah. Nobody's listening to podcasts anyway. So I don't that's know. That's true. We've hit peak podcast, guys. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you've heard. <laughs> yeah. So go enjoy your life. John and I will. We'll be in New Hampshire mm-hmm. so, uh, for a family occasion. So would you be, would uh, if take... you want to meet us in person, go to New Hampshire and search the, search, uh, search the state and <laughs> you will find us. We'll be taking a little sojourn to recharge our batteries and we'll be back yeah. with fresh, fresh podcast content for y'all. Yes. Until then, thank you everybody for listening. And until next time, I'm just going to continue with this Irish accent. Until next time, keep aspiring.